This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special history edition of the podcast is the Naval History Editor-in-Chief, Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. Ward, salutations. It's been too long a time. I know. It's been minutes since we've last conversed in the acoustically perfect studio as part of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center Complex. I just heard a pin drop. It's great to be here in person. It's great to see you in person, all three dimensions, as we've mentioned. Actually, all five dimensions for you, because you're not of this earth. But we have a great guest today from the great issue known as the August issue of Naval History Magazine. The cover story, in fact, by none other than the Naval History 2020 author of the year, Mark R. Fulce, um, who's been on with us before. And it's great to see you again, Mark. Welcome in person to the studio. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, I have very, very fond, my family has very, very fond memories of Annapolis. Coming back here is kind of like coming home. I mean, you guys are cool too, I guess. Uh, but uh, <laughs> wow. coming back to Annapolis is awesome. Uh, very much appreciate being here. Thank you. So Mark's here with us today to talk about the cover story, which is uh, getting a lot of good feedback. It's a very timely and relevant piece of history um, and it is about how from the 1890s to the 1930s, a series of tropic zone small wars molded the evolving doctrine of the U.S. Marine Corps. So here to talk about this period of Marine Corps history known as the Banana Wars is Mark. Mark, this is a great topic, and I feel like when we were working on this piece that it just resonated today. And that's what we love most is when a history piece very much feels like something timely now. And I think that's what you've struck with this article here. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, when you look back on the Marine Corps' uh, very recent history, um, I'm talking about the last 20 years or so, um, it's hard to not see the relevance. I mean, the, the, the Marine Corps these days, I think this is my third piece I've uh, published with you guys. All three pieces have bit, felt very relevant to the Marine Corps. So the first one having to do with the shift towards uh, peer competition and expeditionary advance base operations and those types of things. Um, the other one dealing with Lejeune and his impact on education structure and all of that. And this one having to do with counterinsurgency doctrine, small their small wars experience. Uh, so this piece has to do has you know is very very relevant to what the Marine Corps has been doing very recently. And what I have a hunch, if if history is any guide, I have a hunch that the Marines are going to have to do again, uh, probably sooner rather than later. So, yeah, all of that uh, kind of informed, was, was kind of sitting in, in the back of my head as I, was, as I was writing this piece, and I hope readers were able to pick up on uh, some, of, some of those relevancies as well. Why don't you tell us about how they got, first got involved in this? Because in the uh, 1890s, this was more of a U.S. Army show mm -hmm. originally, correct? If you think about what the United States was doing from 
you know, its founding up until the 1890s. It was constantly expanding westward. Uh, you know, uh, right outside the door here used to be the west uh, here, in, here in Annapolis, Maryland. I mean, it, it, it just it slowly progressed westwards. This used to be the frontier, and the frontier keeps going west. So there was always this expansion across the United States, much to the chagrin of the, the native populations, but that's a different conversation. The U.S. Army and various militias throughout the United States' entire history was on the front lines of that expansion. You can't really have, you can't really talk about U.S. history without talking about, I think, military history. And a lot of the United States military history took place on the frontier. And one of the ways in which the U.S. Army dealt with, or at least tried to remove recalcitrant native uh, populations, was through means short of war. Things that we would classify today as counterinsurgency warfare, guerrilla warfare. I don't think those terms had any merit back then when it was going on, but they, you know, they, they make sense to us today. So for the, the longest time, the U.S. Army was very much the um, go-to and the most experienced U.S. military institution in terms of small wars. Uh, if you fast forward to the 1860s, the U.S. Army fought numerous uh, counterinsurgency campaigns in the Shenandoah Valley out in the Trans-Mississippi West and places like that. So they had a lot of experience there. And then the, the Native American Wars in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, the U.S. Army was doing all of that. The Marine Corps wasn't involved. I think the Marine Corps had a couple, had a lots of overseas landings. Uh, the Marine Corps was, helped the Army during the Seminole Wars of the 1830s. I think that, that was a piece that was in, uh, that was a part of this article that I took out uh, pretty early on, so you never got to see it, to meet the word count. Um so that's where the United States kind of tradition of small wars comes from. And there was some, some of it was being taught in West Point. Uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan's father, Dennis Mahan in West Point, was te- actually taught a little bit on uh, small wars uh, in, the, in the 1800s. How about that? Yes. Um, the original, the original uh, small war, one of the original small wars theorists in the United States was also a Mahan. Uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan's dad. Mahan the Elder. Yeah, I know it. it, it it's fascinating wow. stuff. So um, there was some informal, quote-unquote, doctrines uh, circulating through the Army um, in the 1880s, 1890s, and into the early 1900s. And the Marine Corps got involved in this after the defeat of Spain in the Spanish-American War in 1898. The, the Marine Corps expands. The Navy expands. The United States has all of these overseas interests now. Um, that expansion, that kind of manifest destiny-type uh, outlook that a lot of Americans had that pushed American civilization or U.S. civilization across the continent spills overseas to the to the Pacific, which means the Navy has got more things to do. If the Navy has more things to do, the Marine Corps has more things to do. Um, but still, the Army was the main force in terms of um, dealing with counterinsurgencies, counter guerrilla operations, contingency operations. They were the main show. Uh, the Marine Corps steps in to help, and one of the first times they actually step in to help is in the Philippines. Uh, which I talk, which I talk about here, and from there the the, the Marines start to learn how to uh, wage short of war operations f- directly from the Army, because they are serving under the Army. A lot of their commanding officers in the Philippines think about this: were officers who f- who fought against the Indians in the West. Think of those Western films, right? <laughs> right. Think of those Western films with these you know these soldiers in blue chasing Native Americans. Those guys are going to be general officers and above in the Philippines teaching the Marines how to do these things or in kind of informal ways. So the Marines are going to learn from the Army in the Philippines how to do this. And that's going to lead to 
I guess, good and bad consequences. Um, so that's how the Marines got started in this. Mm-hmm. And then this is all dovetailing nicely with Theodore Roosevelt's beefed-up Monroe Doctrine, which um, set new sights on the uh, backdoor neighborhood, if you will, the Caribbean mm-hmm. and um, similar environs. And um, right as the Marines are kind of ramping up their role in this, TR is looking at uh, the Caribbean um, in a very uh, defensive posture kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, so this opens up a whole new avenue of small wars for the Marines. It's, and uh, you talk about them in order here. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you give us a rundown of that? So when I, whenever I talk about Teddy, when, when I used to talk about Teddy Roosevelt to midshipmen at the Naval Academy, um, it was always very interesting because lots of Marines at the time didn't like Teddy Roosevelt because he was part of, you know, he was assistant secretary of the Navy uh, once, and he wrote this book, the War, you know, the Naval War of 1812, when he was an undergrad because he's brilliant, and I hate him for that. Uh, but it was very successful. He was like 20 when he wrote this book and published it. It was a really good book. Um, also a member of the Naval Institute. Also a member of the Naval Institute. Loved to read to this guy. He was a voracious reader, very, very smart guy. Um, he, was a, he was a very big proponent of Alfred Thayer Mahan and his teachings and his writings, he was a big proponent of having a, a, a first-class, first-rate, no pun intended, navy, um, uh, one that could compete with all the European navies on the world stage. Um, but he had friends in the Army like Leonard Wood, and he tended to listen to Leonard Wood when it came to, hey, let's just, just, just give the Marines over to the Army. We'll make them like a, a, uh, you know, a coastal defense battalion or something like that. And... By this time, the Marine Corps, the early 1900s, 1908, 1909, the Marine Corps was starting to make its way into the public press a little bit more. They're getting a bit more savvy in terms of uh, public relations, and that was getting on some people's nerves. And Teddy Roosevelt was, yeah, yeah, let's just do away with the the Marine. We'll just hand the Marine Corps over to the Army. We'll pull. And also, the Navy was, well, let's get the the Marines off the ships. Uh, and Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt was like, sure, fine, that's fine with me. So at the same, so on one hand, the Marine Corps sees Teddy Roosevelt as kind of a threat to their existence. Okay, um, I don't think he necessarily was, but they saw it that way. On the other hand, he gave them lots to do. He gave them a lot to do. The Caribbean and Latin America and South America was a was crucially important for what TR saw as United States uh, strategic security. Okay, so I mentioned here in, in the in the article, this was a time of great power competition. Um, um, between Great Britain, Germany, France, Russia, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the traditional five powers, five dominant powers in Europe are off building empires across the globe. You know, uh, they're, I guess, quote unquote, taking over, uh, sovereign peoples in Africa, Asia, all over the place. Uh, and Teddy Roosevelt didn't want them coming in and establishing naval bases anywhere in the, in the Caribbean, didn't want them establishing any bases anywhere in South America because of what was going, the construction of the Ismithian Canal in Panama. Now, the Ismithian Canal in Panama is crucially important because, as a proponent, uh, as a believer in Alfred Thayer Mahan's maxims, the ability to concentrate your fleet, the canal was crucially important for the United States to be able to concentrate its fleet in one ocean or the other. So the thought of Germany establishing a naval base in Cuba or the Dominican Republic or Haiti, or Puerto Rico was just, no, we can't have that. We can't have that because that's too much of a threat to the canal. Um, so the, the problem with that was, and what Teddy Roosevelt saw, is a lot of these countries owed money to European powers. 
they would default on these loans because of civil unrest and things of that nature, which they saw as inviting foreign powers to come in and set up uh, what could potentially be a naval station too close to the canal. And Teddy Roosevelt just wasn't willing to risk that. So the, the corollary of the Monroe Doctrine is, in the case of civil unrest in any of these Caribbean or South American countries, we will intervene. European countries have to stay out. We will come in and make sure that debts are being paid off, um, in part to keep the peace in the area, quote-unquote keep the peace in the area, but also to protect the canal and protect the strategic security of the United States in that region, which gave the Navy lots to do. And because the Navy had lots to do in that region, the Marines are going to have a lot to do in that region. That explains why the Marines are going to be in Mexico, in Cuba, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, uh, Nicaragua, and all of those places. Uh, among the, the powers that we're speaking of uh, are the, is the Spanish Navy, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're also in, have designs on the Caribbean. They're trying mm-hmm. to stymie Teddy Roosevelt's vision of, of Americana, mm-hmm. not to mention westward expansion. And, and there, there is a concern that we're going to ally with Mexico and Central American countries and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so forth and so on. And so... The other thing I will throw in here at this point is this era, the the beginning of what your article deals with, is also post-Civil War. Mm-hmm. As you said, Kearney's Army of the West were starting to move out. As you mentioned, that the same folks that taught counterinsurgency to the Marines in the Philippines were veterans of the westward expansion. Those same guys were also veterans of the Civil War. You know, I'm thinking particularly of, of Custer and people like that. Mm-hmm. And so um, this post-Civil War expansion includes the Caribbean and, and includes, as TR does in a big way, and as you've already framed, includes the building of a, a over-the-horizon Navy, mm-hmm. something that traditionally the that United States had not been terribly interested in. I mean, you know, Decatur kind of went against jefferson's wishes and did Mm -hmm. it anyway but Mm -hmm. it's not something that we'd really had as an executive commander-in-chief kind of edict as tr had done Mm -hmm. um so as you said this this idea that we have dominion we need to care about our presence in the caribbean and places like that is sort of a nascent thing Mm -hmm. and and it very much forges american foreign policy but it also to a great degree and this is kind of the war between the wars, which becomes the signature of the Marine Corps, an expeditionary force instead of a garrison force, to be very simplistic about the difference between the, the Marine Corps and the, the Army. Mm-hmm. But in, in what ways are the specific events that, that inform the Marine Corps' sense of identity? Mm-hmm. You, know, you already mentioned that they were good at PR, right, mm-hmm. uh, which... You know, the Army and Navy would say that the Marine Corps polishes the trophy better than any other service. Um, you know, they teach heritage in boot camp. They teach yep. heritage in yep. a way that uh-huh. uh, is very deliberate. Uh-huh. Um, but a lot of those things are are created by this era mm. and by, um, you know, these banana wars. So mm. what are some of those those things that sort of forge this personality of the Marine Corps? Okay. Uh, so, very good question. Um as I said, right around this time, one of the reasons why the early 20th century Marine Corps is so fascinating, and this is a woefully understudied subject or side of their history, is the growth of their PR apparatus. Okay, so the Marine recruiters right after uh, the Spanish-American War figure out 
how to get into the newspapers, how to make friends with newspapermen. They, they figure this out in Chicago. They start just hanging out with journalists. And it's a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. They, they, they give the journalists something to write about, and the journalists give the Marines uh, much-needed press. Uh, and this kind of happens on the ground independently of any kind of uh, orchestration from Marine Corps headquarters. Uh, fast forward about 1911, uh, and you have the first official Marine Corps Publicity Bureau operating out of uh, New York City, eventually. And they start, they, they come out with uh, the Marines, mag- well, not the Marines Magazine, they come out with, um, they come out with uh, the Recruiter's Bulletin, and uh, and from there, the recruiters are able to, to communicate with each other and push this narrative of Marine exceptionalism, and through there, what the Marines are doing at this time are these small wars that we're talking about. They're landing in places like Haiti and Dominican Republic. They're landing in Puerto Rico. They're landing in Nicaragua. And they are um, going and hanging out with newspapermen in New York City, um, New York City specifically because, well, that's where their headquarters is, the, the publicity headquarters is, but also because they believed that any kind of news that hits New York City is going to become national news because New York City is like the central hub of all PR in the United States. All right, so it was very smart of them to do this. Um, so... What the Marines are able to do is present themselves as whenever Americans, whether it's sugar companies, railroad companies, overseas are in trouble, it's these um, brave Marines that come storming ashore and saving everybody. And they push that they're polishing the trophy, as you said, uh, and they're pushing this narrative. Now, the Army's not really doing PR this way. The Army is concerned with how big, it's, how big it is and its, it's various divisions, uh, you know, stationed across the United States and what it's doing in the Philippines and Philippine scouts. The, the Army's got a lot of stuff going on. PR isn't really one of those things that the Army is as concerned about. Um, I'm not saying they're not concerned about it, but it seems like the Marines are very, very, uh, they're putting in a lot of effort in pushing this narrative. So on one hand, you have the operating forces of the Marines out there doing these things. Okay, and it's creating a cadre of officers who are learning about small wars and they're learning about different tactics like concentrating populations in certain areas in order to root out insurgents in the, in the, in the wilderness and you know, uh, carrot and stick, uh, chastisement and appeasement measures and all those types of things, patrolling, small unit patrols. Um, all those well, types and of things. Amphibious warfare, right? I mean, these so are every single one of these landings, landings has yeah. an amphibious component because it's essentially a ship to shore movement, right? right? Yeah. Um, there's all kinds of things they have to figure out regarding efficiently getting from shore, from the ship to the shore. Like these aren't beach assaults, right? These, okay, we're going to, the ship pulls up docks, the Marines march off the boat onto the dock and they march into the city and they figure out what they're going to do from there. So yes, it's a ship to shore movement, but it's not, we're not storming the beaches of of Culebro or Tarawa or anything like that yet, but the concept is there, right? Um, so they're, they're doing all of these things while at the same time working on the PR, and it's creating this public image. I think Aaron O'Connell asked me a few years ago at the Naval Academy, he was like, is there a Marine image at this time? And I would say yes. And it is essentially a white, square-jawed male Marine going ashore with a flag raising behind them and Navy ships off on shore in support. That's what the image is. It's like this, this Marine uh, doing uh, what his country is asking him to do overseas in tropic climes. If you unpack that image, then we start having these discussions about, okay, counterinsurgencies, amphibious warfare, things like that. Um, so there's, and to this day, you know, the Marine Corps loves telling stories about Dan Daly, who's on the cover of this, this article. Uh, these, these Marines who, um, 
had these incredible experiences in the jungles of Haiti or the Dominican Republic or the Philippines or on the wall in Peking, China, right? Um, so a lot of the Marine Corps heroes come from this. A lot of the Marines' experiences um, inform what's going to become the Small Wars Manual that's published in the late uh, 1930s before World War II uh, kicks off. So this is all very, very important stuff that I think is still relevant to the Marine Corps today. Meanwhile, at the time, it's all very appealing to the readership at home. I would imagine boys reading this kind of thing. Um, it's like the stuff of adventure stories, but it's really happening. And uh, it has all the elements of the exotic locale, um, yeah. two-fisted situations, um, yes. American bravery and yes. uh, guns blazing and all that, mm -hmm. the iconic campaign hats, mm -hmm. a tilt. Yep. Um, that, that played into the PR, but that also is kind of the reality on the ground. This is some tough neighborhoods in terms of terrain and climate, and it, it kind of hardened the Marines up, did it not? It hardened them up or it broke them down. And I, what, I, what I mean by that is this is the World War I era. This is another reason why this is fascinating is because all of us out of nowhere, this uh, United States, not out of nowhere, but in terms of the long view of history, World War I and World War II are kind of anomalous. And what the Marine Corps, and I would, I would say even the Army, the U.S. Army had been doing through much of its history. You have the Civil War, you have the small little, you have the Spanish-American War, which was, took place all over the place, but it was still relatively small uh, in terms of the sizes of forces engaged. Then you have World War One, and then World War II, um, and you've, you can throw Vietnam in there. But with all the years crammed between those conflicts, you have months and months and years and years of small units, Marines and Army, patrolling foreign tropics, um, getting in ambushes, uh, providing aid to villages, uh, fighting counterinsurgencies, pacifying areas, years and years of this stuff that, are, that extend much longer than I think um, U.S. forces combat experiences in World War I and World War II. So you throw World War I in the, into the mix, and, you, and the Marine Corps expands to... 75,000 Marines on paper, but probably more closer to 65,000 actual Marines. Uh, and a lot of them go over to France, but many of them stay in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And World War I bolsters that image that we're talking that I talked about earlier. You know, this, so one of the reasons why Bella Wood was such a big deal, it was, that wasn't just the Marines, you know, polishing their trophy. Uh, that was the Marines are already, had already been working on their PR apparatus. And all of a sudden, when they finally get good news, Floyd get, before Floyd Gibbons gets shot in the jaw um, at, at Bella Wood, he's able to send out a story about how Marines did these wonderful things uh, on June 6th of 1918. Uh, and you, the public, the United States public, is waiting with bated breath. Okay, what, are the, what is the United States going to do? What are our American boys going to do against these crack German troops? And all of a sudden, in early June, they get this news of Marines uh, defeating the Germans. Was it true? But... That's what they heard. Well, but devil dogs, right? That yes, was, that's yes. Devil that, dogs that's a whole from, other right? conversation. That's a fascinating conversation, too, where that term came from. Um, I actually kind of think that term is an insult. But I think if the Germans used that term, I thought it was, I think it was probably an insult. But the Marines took it as like a source of pride. A source of, we can talk about that later. What is that, Teufelhund in German? Uh, yeah, yeah, Teufelhund. So, anyway. Teufelhund. I, again, we can talk about that, but I, I'm trying to make a different point. The point is what the Marines were doing in uh, – German and in France supported their public image and the claims they're making to the public. What they were doing in Haiti and the Dominican Republic at the same time, not so much. They had a term back then called tropicalitis, and it was this idea that white men, and this is the important part, race played a crucial part of this, white men surrounded by 
quote-unquote lesser races. That was the idea at the time. In these insalubrious tropical climes will break down and degenerate over time if they're there too long. Now, this was kind of a pseudoscience back then, but people wrote about it like it was a scientific fact. Like this is what was going. This is what this is what happened to white people. Um, and Marines believed that they suffered from that. Uh, the heat got to some Marines. Uh, diseases got to some Marines. Drinking too much on post because they were bored got to got to Marines. Like one of the hardest things from counterinsurgency from someone who's participated in one is the boredom. The boredom being on post, the long periods of time where you're just staring on a road or you're staring at a church or you're staring at a village for just months and months on end, it gets to people. They get bored, and when they get bored, they find some alcohol, or some do, and they tend to, you know, do things they shouldn't do, illicit activities. Marines are going to get in trouble in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and I, may, I think I mentioned this a little bit, but I've written on this elsewhere. Um, a lots of in, The Marines are going to go under uh, a pretty staunch naval and senate investigation in the early 1920s uh, because of illicit activities that they're doing in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Illicit meaning um, uh, 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 you know, being alleged uh, indiscriminate murderers and things, and things like that. I didn't have room to make it into this piece because it, it was a general overview. But the Marines got in trouble in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And that PR apparatus that they had before the war is, is so good that it helps seed them through all of that. They eventually overcome all of that, or at least that's my argument. Um, so, you know, you, Eric, you made a very good point that, you know, all of this stuff can be pitched in a way that to help, to boost recruiting, but the reality on the ground was much different. It was much much different. You know, Haiti and the Dominican Republic were feeling the pinch of World War One as, as as much as everybody else was, and it helped feed these insurgencies that were going on in 1918, 1919, and some Marines didn't handle it very well. You, you mentioned in there actually how uh, once the Great War is on, um, the Marine ranks in the uh, Dominican Republic begin to include brand new volunteers who had joined to fight the Germans, not Haitians or Dominicans. Yes. They got sent to the place they didn't mean to get sent to. Yes, um, and they were not happy about it, not happy about it at all. Um, in, in, in France... It was much more conventional uh, type of, 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 of combat. You know, the lines were pretty clearly drawn. I mean, it was trench warfare for a lot of it, for Christ's sakes. Now, once the United, once the second ID gets to the front lines, the lines are much more fluid, right? Um, and, you know, the maneuver warfare is able to come back in a little bit. That was the war that a lot of these young American kids signed up to fight, right? Now, imagine that's what you want to do. You want to go make the world safe for democracy and fight the Germans and test your manhood and test your mettle. Oh, wait, you're going to Haiti. And <laughs> it's a totally different war. It's a totally different uh, conflict. And um, Smedley Butler, I love talking about Smedley Butler in this context because he didn't get to, he begged his father, Thomas Butler, begged him to get him orders out of Haiti to go to France. He begged and begged and begged. And when he finally got orders to France, he became a camp commander. Didn't see any combat in France. And when he, when he got there, he sent a letter back to his friends in Haiti saying, I should have never left. I should have never come here. Um, Smedley Butler felt like his manhood, his reputation was on the line if he did not go to, go to France. And he wasn't the only one. Lots of Marine officers tried to get out of Haiti. They tried to get out of the Dominican Republic. Desperately tried to get out of there to go fight uh, in France. 
Smedley Butler is such a compelling figure that defines this era, doesn't he? He the, yeah. the contradictions and, uh, and contrasts within him reflect this period of Marine Corps history. This mm-hmm. is the man who had the time of his death had garnered 17 military awards, including two medals of honor. Yet it's also the man who wrote War as a Racket. Mm-hmm. Um, it shows how uh, one can become jaded after years and years of these sort of interventionist, dragged out police actions, if you will. Yes. Um, I believe it was Schmidt, Hans Schmidt, who wrote uh, Maverick Marine um, about Smedley Butler and the contradictions of U.S. military history. And I think that's a great way of describing Smedley Butler uh, and the contradictions. So he's he's a very complex, complicated figure. He's a very, very famous officer, but he, he embodied this kind of, quote-unquote, uh, um, Marine anti-intellectualism which is ironic considering the intellectual things that the Marines were doing at the time. There's very, very fascinating uh, Marine Corps Gazette articles uh, coming out around this time about, you know, that was published by Lejeune and Russell uh, and uh, various others about, you know, forming the, what's the Marine Corps' mission, what's their raison d'etre, you know, let's shift over towards advanced-based seizure and defense, those types of things. The Marines are doing very, very interesting intellectual things. But he embodies this kind of expeditionary out in the jungle uh, kind of hard scrabble marine mentality, this toughness that enlisted marines loved, loved it. He was a very very inspiring commander. He had a very leathery voice that carried very well. He just kind of, he kind of walked uh, in a way that it, it, you have to see video videos of him on YouTube. He's kind of stooped over, almost like a vulture, just kind of eyeing everything. And to and, and to see that if you're a lower level enlisted marine is very very inspiring. He he had this really tough mentality, so. Which means he always wanted to be in the mix of things. He always wanted to be in the fight. He believed that his Medal of Honor that he got at Veracruz was unfair, that he should not have gotten it. Um, he, he talked about you know wanting to give it back, uh, but he, you know, he obviously never did. Um, he was just a very, um, like I said, lower-level Marines, just really enlisted Marines, loved the guy. Um, he didn't have, you know, with, with his fellow officers, yeah, hit or miss, hit or miss. Um, he got, like I said, he got tired of being in Haiti. He liked being in Haiti when it was the exciting thing to do until World War One broke out. When World War One broke out, he wanted to be in France. The big show. He, the big show. Uh, and he was, he thought that, you know, any Marines who missed out on France would be, you know, not have as good a chance at promotion later. And he was right. He was right. The promotion boards later in the 1920s always preferred uh, officers who had served in France, as opposed to those who got stuck in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Um, he didn't like, he had he had kind of a touchy relationship with officers who graduated from this place, the Naval Academy. He thought, he, he, ring knockers, he always thought that they kind of were a, this kind of cabal that pulled the strings uh, behind the scenes and uh, did all these you know, unnecessary bad things for the Marine Corps and for the Navy. And he felt like it was their fault as, as to why he never made commandant. Uh, but so he ends up, he gets out of the Marine Corps. He says some really bad things about Mussolini. It's kind of hard to imagine what bad thing could you possibly say about Mussolini. But Mussolini was alive at the time and demanded an apology. And anyway, long story short, he retires, and all of a sudden he starts coming out against these uh, these wars overseas, right? Which is interesting because when I was perusing through his papers as a graduate student, I came across the letters to he had friends at banks, and I came across the letters. He was saying, "Hey, I'm kind of bored. You guys uh, got anything going on down in the?" In the Caribbean again, uh, swear to God. 
swear to God. It's like you're bored. Five years ago, you were complaining about being there and you wanted to leave and now you want to go back. It's, it's weird. It's, it's, he's, he's a fascinating guy. Um, yeah, and he, he's one of the reasons why this period is interesting. Well, we'll direct the listeners to also check out the graphic novel that Dead Reckoning published last year called Smedley. It's uh, The Life of Smedley Butler. So if you enjoy that format, that's a that's a good good book. He's later involved in this plot to um, do yes. something bad to FDR. He's instrumental yes. in protecting FDR. Yes. Colorful yes. character, to say the least. Yes. He, uh... <laughs> you mentioned the, his, the mystique <laughs> he had with the younger officers. I was always interested in his nickname, which I, I, I'll admit I don't quite understand. They called him Old Gimlet Eye. I see. I, I, Have you I, heard that? I, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to lie. I, I'm, I'm less familiar with where that moniker came from. Uh, I'm not sure what it means. What is a Gimlet Eye? I mean, I know what a gimlet. gimlet it's a drink, right? Yeah, it's so like yeah. a vodka gimlet. It's got yeah. lime juice. Right. Yeah, it's I just a little. Maybe... I don't know. <laughs> he also was a teetotaler, I believe. You, you, he was a Quaker. Yeah, he was a Quaker. I don't know how much of a. So during Prohibition, he, he goes. smashed up stills? Yeah, he goes. To, he, he gets put. <laughs> he takes leave from the Marine Corps and he goes and works for, you know, the, the police department in Philadelphia, essentially. Um, if I'm. Someone's going to have to, don't quote me on this, but he does go and works for uh, Pennsylvania law enforcement. And one of his jobs is breaking up the wets, as they called them back then, uh, the people who were anti-prohibition. So I don't know. Maybe that's I, where it came from. It's been, it's been a while since I read uh, Schmidt's book on, I would have to, I would have to revisit that. Uh, but I, I'm not entirely sure where Gimlin and I came from or what it means. Uh, and uh, to what extent he was actually a teetotaler. I can't really comment on either. Um, I can tell you he had a Marine Corps tattoo. I can probably tell you where that is because uh, <laughs> I've seen his medical records. Um, <laughs> but you're not going to tell us. Is that correct? <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you. Darn it. It's where G.I. Joe's made in the USA. MMS. <laughs> oh. Right? Remember your G.I. Joe? <laughs> no comment. Okay. So this era also, besides Smedley Butler, uh, informs not just the PR set, but tactical thought mm. for those who are involved. Mm. And I'm thinking of Major Utley, mm. who has a great article in Proceedings circa 1931 about amphibious warfare. Mm. In fact, when I lecture at the basic school and expeditionary warfare school, I point this out mm. as a benefit of membership as you have access to the archives. starts with Lejeune's article in 1925 titled the United States Marine Corps, mm. you know, um, and then Utley's article, basically it's not unlike what Nimitz writes about the submarine force in 1912, which is we have to get our act together. Utley also in 1931, this is a call to action. To, we've got to get our act together in terms of amphibious warfare, which was prescient, obviously, because some 11 years later, here's Guadalcanal, yeah. right? And so when you look at the amphibious warfare craft in 1931, they look like lifeguard boats, right? And they're jumping off the side of them, and it was survivability was not even a factor. Mm. Um, and so how far the Marine Corps came in, in the 30s is by and large a function of the tactical thought of folks who forged their Marine Corps identity in the Banana Wars. Right, right. So one of the reasons why these discussions about advanced-based seizure and defense or amphibious warfare, amphibious assault are so fascinating is trying to trace the lineage of those ideas. So you have some Marines looked at the assault on Bella Wood and the wheat field. They, 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 they saw the wheat, they 
interpreted the wheat field after the fact. It wasn't during the fact, but after the fact, it said, well, the wheat field was like a beach that you have to storm across. And Bella Wood was kind of an island of trees. Um, and it was like this assault across the beach into an island of trees. If we take that concept and we just move it to the oceans and we, we can we have a better grasp of what we're actually doing, um, that's a simplistic way of thinking about it, um, but it, it, was, it was useful to an extent. But one of the things that the Marines had to figure out about amphibious warfare was just the logistics of it. How do you get um, enough manpower on the beach fast with enough firepower to neutralize or at least uh, compete with the firepower, the enemy firepower trying to repulse them? How to do that fast, how to do that effectively, how to coordinate um, naval gunfire support, how to communicate with the ships behind you, and how do you direct their fires? And then you add in aerial bombardments. How do you talk to those guys? How do you coordinate that? How do you create the staffs to coordinate those things? How do you train people to do those things? It's not just the Marine Corps we're talking about at this point. We're also talking about service warfare officers. We're also talking about naval gunnery. We're talking about all of these things. Uh, and they, in Lejeune in 1916, in, in, in his seminal article on advanced space seizure and defense, one of, the, one of the funniest lines, the only funny line I've ever heard him read because I, I've ever seen him write was, was this line. Um, as Marines, we land, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, and, he, and he's writing this as a reaction to uh, the landing at Veracruz. We land and we think our provisions are going to come to us as like manna from the sky. We, we, just, we just expect us to be provisioned and ammo and food and, and, and medical care. Is all of this is just going to come to us. We have not figured this out yet. We don't know what we're doing in this regard. And that was a crucial thing they had to figure out. So in terms of you know, logistics and just the logistics of operating, forward operating, you know, I think there's some experience there from the banana wars, but a lot of it just trying to get troops from ship to shore and getting the fire support and all that stuff that they need in the face of a of an enemy that's actually shooting back was, you know, they had to figure out on their own. There really wasn't a whole lot of precedent for it. There was Gallipoli. They saw how Gallipoli was, a, was a, just a, a fiasco. They saw why that didn't work. They realized you had to have um, control, control of the sea around the target. You can't have enemy submarines, you know, patrolling around. Otherwise, the Navy ships are going to have to leave, which is kind of what happens at Guadalcanal. Not really enemy submarines, but enemy surface ships. Um, they had to figure all that stuff out. And all that was kind of independent of the Small Wars experience, I think. But where the Small Wars experience did come in, fast forward to Guadalcanal. I make this point in here. Um, I don't think the tentative manual of landing operations had much utility when we're talking about combat patrols in the jungles of Guadalcanal. That expertise comes from somewhere else. And I think that expertise and that institutional memory comes from patrolling in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And you have um, officers like Merritt Edson who had experience doing these things on the ground in Guadalcanal, um, teaching their own Marines and helping them survive and helping them defeat the enemy. So Guadalcanal is this great, not only is it one of the first uh, battles of World War II where it pits U.S. forces against Japan, it's this wonderful example of, okay, an amphibious invasion, figuring out the logistics of it, landing the troops wasn't the problem at Guadalcanal. It was keeping the Navy around. It was getting the, the Japanese Navy defeated finally. And it was Marines in the jungles fighting against the Japanese using air support, using their Cactus Navy, and all those other types of things. Um, and all of this feeds into this, this discussion of amphibious warfare and small wars, right? Um, so it's just it's fascinating stuff. An another 
bit of doctrine that directly came from the Banana Wars experience. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. It's the Small the Small Wars Manual that uh, was drafted in 1935. That kind of had a resurgence of interest. I, I remember in the early 2000s, maybe a later version of it. But mm-hmm. everybody was like dusting off the Small Wars Manual. Yes, which yeah. is kind of interesting in more ways than might have they might have intended at the time. Yes. So one of the interesting things. I feel like I'm sounding like such a fanboy of this era, but I really, I really, really am. Uh, the interesting thing about this and the fascinating thing about that, but it, I, I can't have it. It's true. Um, so I think Keith Bickle, who's the author of Mars Learning, which is a look at the Marine Corps' doctrinal process during this period, who I talked to about this very article. He's a, he's a prince of a man. Um, he made the point in that book that the Marine Corps tends to see its history as this evolution almost like this foreordained evolution into this pre-modern ship landing force that that dealt with some expeditionary uh, uh, things here and there that evolves into this amphibious, these amphibious warfare experts, right? That's kind of like the the line, the historiographical line um, that Marines like to pitch to this day, right? and like marine, and they, they tie it to Marine Corps culture and all these other types of things. Um, I argue, in part because of uh, Keith Bickle's research and other people's research, like Jeannie Johnson, I think this, oh, who's out in Utah, um, that the Marine Corps culture was flexible enough and um, inclusive enough to allow uh, a different type of subculture to exist within that larger dominant culture that was moving towards amphibious assault and amphibious warfare. And that subculture was small wars. So they shut down uh, the Marine Corps schools. They don't shut them down, but essentially uh, halt classes in the fall of 1933, early spring of 1934. And they put everybody to work on the tentative manual landing operations, the TMLO. Later on, they... Uh, appoint a small group of instructors and kind of forego their teaching activities um, and let them put together the Small Wars Manual. So it's Harrington and Utley at this point. And this Small Wars Manual is based on all of these things that we've talked about. It's based on all the things the Marines learned from the Army, but it's also very much built upon their own experiences. It's not dependent on the Army in that sense. The Marines get their own experiences in Nicaragua, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, um, and they are able to publish this very, very useful doctrine. Um, and it essentially creates this, like I said, subculture that goes away, I think, for the most part during World War II, because despite the fact that they're you know, fighting in jungles overseas, the, the fact that they're still trying to get a lot of troops from ship to shore in a timely fashion while they're being shot, it takes up a lot of mental space, Right. Uh, the tactical things on the ground are going to come once they get to shore. Uh, but so much of the planning is involved in just getting them ashore, right? Um, but you, you have the Small Wars Manual is going to be very, very relevant again in Vietnam. I think everybody here knows about Vietnam. Um, it's going to be very, very rele- relevant again in the 1990s, and it's going to be relevant again in the global war on terror. So much so that Army and Marine... Uh, writers and researchers 
are going to come up with a new manual, the counterinsurgency manual that comes out. What was it, 2007, 2006, 2007? Sounds about right time Yeah, it's, it's this whole new it's, – it's, it's this joint uh, publication for the Army and the Marine Corps to use for counterinsurgency operations. And it's, uh, I guess, one of its intellectual uh, antecedents was very much the Small Wars manual. Very much so. Well, I think too often we – not historians, uh, certainly, but too often casual history consumers look at history sort of episodically. Mm-hmm. Like you land on the planet and it's the Battle of Midway. Mm-hmm. And you don't think about, okay, where did the principles come from? Mm-hmm. What was the arc of their career that got them to that place? Like mm-hmm. we conceive of Nimitz and Halsey as, you know, four stars beginning and end. And so what they I showed up to the Naval yeah. Academy with five stars. Well, kind of, right? Or they didn't even show up to the Naval Academy at all. They just walked aboard, you know, um, Yorktown and, yeah. and, and whatever, you yeah. know? And, and so what's, what's great about a study of this era, as, we, as we've described in this conversation, is this is what informed Marine Corps doctrine that got them to be able to carry out the island hopping in the Pacific. They didn't just invent this when mm-hmm. they arrived at Guadalcanal. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the folks who came up with that doctrine fought the banana wars and uh, and then, you know, stewed on it during the 30s. Mm-hmm. And that's what got them to where they were able to carry out mm-hmm. what was a no-notice mission, in essence, mm-hmm. in the wake of Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, like, you've, you've investigated the war between the wars. And mm-hmm. that's not – it's so easy – or it's not easy, but you know, we're we're our tendency is talk about Midway, mm. talk about Leyte Gulf, talk mm. about Okinawa, talk about dropping the bomb. Mm. These quiet, quote unquote, eras are the ones that are equally important, mm. and you've done a laudable job of pointing out Thank why you. in this article. So thanks very much for that. Mm. So the article is never known a day of peace. It's in the August issue of Naval History Magazine. Our guest has been Mark Fultz. Is this your third time on the podcast? This is my third time on the podcast. Always a pleasure. A hat trick. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, It's always great to have you. It's great to have you here in person. Absolutely. So back to the new normal. Fantastic. So thank you. All right, Mark. We'll we'll get more good articles from you and have you back again. I certainly look forward to that. All right. Thank you very much. I commend everybody to read this one. It's the cover story on the current issue, and it's great stuff. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thank you. That'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon.